Happy and blessed Sabbath. We are, again, willing and ready to share God's Word with you. And as we do, our prayer continues to be that wherever you are, whatever you might be thinking, you find ways of connecting not just to God, but to each other. As we think about ways in which we connect with you, I'd like to today invite you to join me in prayer as we ask for the God who holds us united to once again link us together. Can we pray? God, we want to thank you for your blessings. We want to thank you because you are truly, truly the tie that binds. And today, as we delve into Scripture, as we continue our lesson study, we simply would pray that you go before us, that your Spirit open our minds, and that that wondrous, wondrous sense of awe that you provide might open our hearts so that the truth of the gospel this idea of the covenant may burrow deep inside us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Can you remember your first date? Was it at a restaurant, an amusement park? Did you nervously hold hands? Were you awkwardly deciding how to end the night, if a hug was appropriate? Or maybe for those of you who are extremely daring, a peck on the cheek. Valinda and I, our first date was as we indulged in a movie that is both comical and terrible. It's called Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. And we didn't really know what movie it was. We didn't know anything about it. We simply knew that it was what was playing at the time we had agreed to meet each other at the theater. And so when we went, surrounded by friends, friends that were invested in keeping us together, and we went with friends that were tired of hearing me bemoan the lack of good Christian women and, be and her bemoaning about the lack of tall, dark, and handsome young men, although I'm neither of those three. And so there we sat. We sat and we enjoyed the popcorn and the awkward conversation. We sat and we laughed at the few jokes that the movie had. We sat and we recognized how as Adventists, both of us truly have no rhythm. And then we came out of the movie theater. And as we did, I knew. I knew already. I knew that this was the woman that God had placed in my life. She, well, she would take a little more convincing, but what remains firmly ingrained in my mind is the reality that that place, that place in Ontario where we met for the first time, that food that we shared, those donuts that we indulged on as we left the theater, those places matter. Because ultimately, places matter. You know, these places that you are connected to, not because of the locales themselves, but because the places are linked to memories. How often have you been at an old school, breathed in the air, and suddenly, as of by magic, are transported in time and space to your younger years? Or you step inside of a church, a church that you haven't visited in decades, and 
in an instant you have a spiritual experience, a revival moment where you remember why you decided to follow this Jesus. Oh, places matter. Places matter because they are able to link. They're able to link us with our stories. They're able to link us with passages in those stories in which we are the protagonists. And not only the protagonists, but these, these highlights in our life. These highlights in our life are capable of determining our identity even as we might live in a present or identity as something difficult to discern. Our places matter. And that's why the covenant, the covenant is about places and spaces. If you think about how the covenantal relationship in the book of Exodus begins to draw to a close, you'll find the reality that in Exodus 25, God gives a command, build me a sanctuary, he says. The eighth verse says, so that I may dwell among you. And the idea of this tent, this tabernacle, it's not simply to contain the Ten Commandments. It's not even to remember that inside the Holy of Holies lies a mercy seat. And on that mercy seat, there is blood sprinkled, sprinkled so that you and I may forever know that we are freed and cleansed from sin. Actually, those spaces and those places matter. They matter because they connect us to someone and something. What is truly remarkable about the gospel is that in the story that is expressed in Exodus, the people of Israel are connected to places, to places that contain the very presence of God. And most religions, most religions say that we have to get good enough, that you have to find a way to escape your surroundings, that you have to find a way to be presentable enough so that God may translate you and transport you into the spaces and places he inhabits. But the covenant in Exodus, the covenant in Exodus says that from the beginning, it is God's plan to dwell among us. I wonder how our lives would change, what decisions we would make, how we would approach our existence if we did so with the unwavering realization that God indeed dwells among us that God speaks to us, and that God moves in us, even as we try to figure out what life is truly about. Places and spaces matter. And that's why at the heart of Christianity lies this idea of incarnation and the notion of empathy. You know, often we think that the sanctuary is about a place, and we think that the sanctuary message in Adventism is about geography, but what if, what if it's about a person? What if the covenant itself is about a person? What if it's about God's willingness to transport himself to the spaces and places that you and I inhabit? Why? To become incarnate. Why? To empathize. Why? Because God wants to understand you. See, I read once that relationships ought to begin from understanding, with understanding, understanding how the other person experiences life, what the other person's viewpoint is, how the other person is moved or swayed 
by experiences. Well, God wants you wants to understand you. When you pray, you, you pray to a God that knows what it is like to be hungry or thirsty or tired or lonely. You pray to a God that has made it his purpose to experience these emotions in his own flesh. And when we talk about empathy and incarnation, we're not just talking about concepts. We're talking about God's salvific act about God's entrance into time and space, about God's indwelling in the places that we exist in. Why? Well, because that's the God we serve. It's a God that's tired of having you think that you have to get good enough. It's a God that desires more than anything that you recognize the inherent value you possess. It's about a God that says, you are so important to me that I want to dwell with you. That I want those spaces and places that are important to you to become part of my story. That I want to jump and explode into the scene, take over the stage, because I want to understand you better. So I want to I want you to come with me very briefly to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8 and 9. Now, with that long preamble on spaces and places firmly entrenched in your mind, I want to provide you an understanding of what the author of Hebrews is trying to do. So as Hebrews is being written, the dominating idea that exists in the ideological pantheon of the ancient Near East is gifted to them by Plato. Plato, who believed that there are two realities, the material and the immaterial. Plato, like so many before him, believes that the purpose of life is to escape the material world in order to claim your stake in the realm of forms, that perfect arena for existence. And it is in this ideological milieu that the author of Hebrews bursts onto the stage with the revolutionary knowledge that flesh matters, that fleshy existence is important. Now, I know that as an Adventist, this doesn't sound like something new or radical to you. After all, we build schools and hospitals. We create and construct plans of living and healthy diets. We forge relationships because we believe not that we possess a soul, but that we are souls. Well, the author of Hebrews knew that way before James and Ellen and Joseph wrote that down in the early tomes of Adventist literature. The author of Hebrews knows that spaces and places matter. But spaces and places matter because the God that dwells in the realm of forms has now invaded the spaces and places that you and I inhabit. It is God's presence in our time and space. It is God's incarnation driven by and through empathy that gives the earth its value. Which is why the author of Hebrews can speak about covenant in new ways. Think about what the author writes in the eighth chapter of the book of Hebrews, think about it in the context of the realm of forms in Neoplatonic thought. Verse 5 says, 
that they, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is heaven. Reminding us of the story in Exodus, the author of Hebrews continues by saying, this is why Moses was warned when we when he was about to build the tabernacle, see that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry of Jesus has, re- has received this as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. So first and foremost, the author of Hebrews says that the tabernacle that God construct, commands Moses to build all the way back in Exodus 25 is merely a shadow, a copy, a material form of this idea that dwells in the heavenly sea. It sounds like Neoplatonic thought. Until you realize that the purpose of that form that perfect sanctuary up in heaven is so that Jesus might be able to incarnate not only his sacrificial ministry for us, but also his intercessory ministry through us today and always. You see, Jesus has a sanctuary in heaven because he is our high priest. Now, I don't want you to miss on how radical this was. You see, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus' incarnation, his death and his resurrection, and by de facto the establishment of the new covenant in Jesus has changed the reality in the earthly sanctuary as well as in the heavenly sanctuary. God's act of incarnation has been so majestic that reality in both heaven and earth has shifted forever. It's not then that the incarnation is God's emergency plan to solve the problem of sin. Rather, it is that the incarnation is such a grandiose act that it now becomes the fulcrum for existence in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the center of existence. So, we ought to approach our ideologies, our theology, our doctrine of the sanctuary, understanding clearly that the fulcrum for it all is Jesus. The covenant that Jesus has come to enact is so radical that it alters the very fabric of the universe. What is this covenant about? Well, look at what the author of Hebrews will tell us. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of creation. Again, it sounds like we're talking about Neoplatonic thought. But notice, it says, he did not enter this perfect sanctuary in heaven through the blood of goats and calves, 
But he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. What gives Christ claim as high priest on heaven and on earth is the sacrificial system enacted on the cross. The cross is the center of Christianity, dear friends. It's the central tenet that we have as a family of believers. It is in the cross that you see God at its best and humanity at its worst. It is the cross that changes everything. The cross then ought to be the interpretive lens from which we understand every single doctrine. It's not that something was left to do after the cross. The cross is big enough to change both heaven and earth. And so my invitation from you as you meditate on spaces and places is that you go out boldly, that you enact sacrificial living through the cross and by the cross in whatever space or place God has called you to dwell in. The sanctuary, the sanctuary changes, but it changes because God loved human beings so much that he became one of us and he suffered like one of us and he died like one of us on Golgotha. That, that reality, well, that reality changes everything. Joey, let's talk about the new covenant in the sanctuary. Mm, wow. Now the sanctuary is a doctrine that is central to the Adventist message, and yet it's one that has had controversy over the years, right? Um, what role it, what does it, what role does it continue to play within our church? What role does it have for, um, for our modern daily living today? So yeah. this is, this is powerful. Yeah, well, as you've, as you've said, Joey, the whole idea of the sanctuary, I think, is a, is a doctrine that is very unique to Adventism. But it's a doctrine that, when not understood through the lens of the cross, has had many uh, Christian brother and sister out there look at Adventism and say, wait a second, how does this play in with your soteriology? How does this play in with your understanding of salvation? For me, the sanctuary still plays a role. And so what I'd love to do with you during uh, the time that we have is together travel down this path that is a dangerous one and full of pitfalls, but trying to see if together maybe we can construct a way in which we can affirm the sanctuary while also affirming the sufficiency of the cross. Mm, yeah, I, I love what you said that the cross, Christ's cross, is actually the interpretive lens through which we interpret the rest of scripture, not the other way around. And I think that's that's where we've gotten into trouble in the past is we've tried to make We've tried to change the cross to sometimes try to fit other things that we see in scripture. But the reality of, I mean, the cross was the epitome of God's love for us and what all of history was pointing to. I mean, Jesus even says this, that he says that, you know, all of this is what points to me. Mm -hmm. It's all, all about me and my life. And it's all been building to this climax mm -hmm. moment. And so to be able to understand the rest, we need to be able to understand Jesus and from that, it gives us a lot more clarity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Joey. So I love the way that the author of Hebrews puts it in, in, this, in this wonderfully 
intellectually stimulating epistle that that he writes it's it's brilliant and it's i think playing with these ideas that were present and prevalent at the time you know the idea of forms and and structures on earth simply being shadows of something else that exists it's rich with greco-roman philosophy but then as any great thinker does he takes us from the known to the unknown and then he switches he says but what really impacted everything was something that happened on earth something that happened through a man named jesus who died on a cross and it is that that has now changed the very fabric of existence, not only on heaven, but also on earth. Yeah, it's 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 a masterful use of language, right? Because language has the meaning that we give to it. And so he takes a language that they're familiar with, but then infuses new meaning into, into that language. So that that's so powerful. I remember hearing um, the uh, Plato's analogy of the cave mm-hmm. where people, you know, he uses this this metaphor to try to describe what he he pictures as as forms and just shadows of things. Um, and I remember thinking, that's so brilliant, you know, what he did. And I I, I realized that, that 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 was the dominant thought during the time that Hebrews is being written. And, and so he takes this idea of the separation of the material, the immaterial, and that the material is terrible, it's bad, that we need to cast off the material in order to to embrace the immaterial, but then and then and then sort of like you said, switches it at the end to describe how actually the most brilliant, the most powerful demonstration of God's love was that He became material, mm. He became flesh, mm-hmm. and dwelt among us, mm-hmm. and so that it is not so much um, escaping reality that is that is the best thing for us, but actually God entering into mm-hmm. our reality and like you said beautifully our places and spaces that really shows who god is yeah no yeah. that's i think that's so well said and i bet our our friends out there are saying what is the analogy of the cave so let me try in 30 seconds joey to do it to do what i what i do with uh when i used to teach introduction to philosophy so as as you were stating Plato says, well, imagine there's a bunch of people living in a cave and they get really good at distinguishing the shadows in the cave because there's dim light that shines into into this cave. But then imagine that one of these people actually escapes. Well, at first, they're not going to be able to see anything. But then as their sight gets adjusted to the light, they're able to see not the world as they think it is, but the world as it as is. So he says, well, now imagine that this person who has escaped the cave and now lives in the light and has learned what real trees and what what real people look like. Well, imagine that he's captured and brought back to the cave. Well, he's rejected then and um, he can't see anymore. His his ability to to be able to distinguish dim light and figures and shadows is, is all but gone. And so when the option to escape it arises for any other of the men living in this cave. They reject it because they're afraid of their sight being ruined. Mm-hmm. And what is really amazing, as I was thinking, uh, you were you were talking about language just so eloquently, and I was thinking, that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing, except he's saying, 
Jesus knew that his sight was going to be ruined. He knew that he was going to be rejected. And yet, willingly, he didn't get captured. Willingly, he descended into the cave that is human existence in order to share in our blindness. And that's what I think is truly unique yeah. about the idea of the gospel, that everybody else, I think, is trying to escape to a better plane of existence. Mm. And Jesus is saying, I don't want to escape. I want to understand. Mm. And so I think that the question that we probably should begin by asking when we're talking about the sanctuary is how does the sanctuary help us better understand a God who is staunchly in the corner of human beings? Mm. No, I, that, that passage that you um, spoke about right at the beginning, Exodus 25, mm -hmm. 8, where he says, that the purpose of the sanctuary is so that he can dwell among men. I think there is something really beautiful and powerful about that statement. And that that if we keep that in mind, it really opens up what the sanctuary mm -hmm. is about. Because we can get really lost mm -hmm. in all the sacrifices and all the rituals. Because you, you read through Exodus and Leviticus, and it's a lot. It's and a lot. sometimes you're wondering... Wait a minute, why all this detail? Why why certain types of animals for certain types of situation? Why different parts are burned and different parts are consumed? And, and why, what's the purpose of all this? It, it, you can get lost in all of it if you miss that central point that the whole point of it was so that God can dwell among men. And that is sort of the interpretive key for the sanctuary. Yeah. And that's why Christ is the interpretive key mm -hmm. for the sanctuary, because that's ultimately what the sanctuary was pointing to, mm -hmm. a time when Christ could actually live out what the sanctuary is demonstrating. Oh, oh. And so I, how I like to think of the sanctuary is almost like a game plan um, that God shared with people before the game even began. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we sometimes talk about football on, on this um, Sabbath school, maybe a little bit too much. I, I apologize about that. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> We're talking about football so much. But, um, I, you know, if you think about football, there's like different levels to watching football. You can enjoy the game. You can watch the game and it's fun. There's action, you know, touchdowns are exciting. It's exciting when they get first downs. But as you watch more and more, you start to figure out how coaches are thinking and what strategies they're using. And, you know, um, Tony Romo got famous, that broadcaster, quarterback turned broadcaster became famous because he would like predict a play and then it would happen and people would be like, wow, that's amazing. I remember they interviewed um, Jay Gruden, who was the former coach of the Washington football team. And he was saying, that's not impressive. I can do that all the time <laughs> because coaches understand what other right. coaches are thinking. Right. Um, and I think what God is giving us an insight to in the sanctuary is what he's thinking. Mm. It's his game plan before he even puts it into mm. play. It's his script of plays. What he's um, planning for throughout the salvation process, he's letting his people know about it so that when they when it happens, they can recognize it and not only recognize it, but appreciate the beauty of what's mm. happening. And so that's that's the way I like to think of the sanctuary is that that, that game plan. And when you think of it that way, then the nuances actually become like brilliant insights into what God is trying to wow, accomplish. That's, I think, so well stated. Um, yeah, you know, so we get lost a lot of the times in, in Leviticus and Exodus. I remember just the first time I thought about what a sacrificial uh, system looks like in practice, and it was gross. I'm just not going <laughs> to yeah, lie. That's true. 
There's blood everywhere. Yeah. And then like the best part is they're going to put whatever animal has been sacrificed, hair, fur, and all, and they're just going to burn it. Mm -hmm. And so you would have had like this, I don't know how many, my, my wife uses a straightener sometimes and sometimes the hair burns. It's not a pleasant smell. Yeah. But Yahweh is saying, you will send these offerings up to me and they will be a sweet aroma. And you're thinking, no. But then you, you miss the nuance. Mm. Now think about the sanctuary for a second, Joey. You know this well. On the Day of Atonement. Mm. On the Day of Atonement, the whole people would come together. Mm. And the scapegoat would come into the middle of the camp. Mm. And the high priest would place his hands on that scapegoat. And the ritual stated that at that moment, the collective communal sins of the people were now placed upon the scapegoat. Mm. And then that scapegoat was let out of the camp. So that sin was not a part of their reality anymore. Mm. And then think about who Jesus is, right? At this moment, right? If you understand what Jesus is doing, at the cross, this moment of intense separation between mm. him and his father. The weight of sin and the sins of the world upon his shoulders, living as the exiled scapegoat outside of his father's tent and mm. his father's camp in order so that sin no mm. longer forms a part of our reality mm. in our camp. And I think that's what you miss as you were stating, when you make the sanctuary about geography, mm. well, what is actually happening up there? Instead of recognizing that the sanctuary is this beautiful game plan about a God who's relentless mm. when it comes to finding ways to reconcile us to him. Yeah. And as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, throughout the whole process of them for years following the sanctuary system. And I think part of part of what we miss when we read it is the blood and the guts mm -hmm. and the gore because it's sort of sanitized when we read right. it. We don't we don't picture it that way, but if you've ever been to a slaughterhouse before or or seen those PETA slaughterhouse videos <laughs> before, it's just like, oh my goodness, there is blood everywhere. I remember the first time I saw a chicken get slaughtered and somebody just, you know, cut off the head and let the chicken run and it was just kind of like flopping oh. around with blood going everywhere. I was like, why are you doing oh. this? This is so terrible. <laughs> Yeah, if I wasn't vegetarian before, that's when I became a vegetarian. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's 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 so gruesome. But I think that's part of the point is is God's making the point: sin is gruesome. The effects of sin. You like to think of it as some clean little thing. It's a white lie. It's a white. You know, it's just this tiny thing. Sin is gruesome. It's destructive. It's death. Right. God wants us to know that. But it. it you know, that message, I think, over history sort of got twisted because other people were also sacrificing in other religions. Mm -hmm. And it was all about, you know, the sacrifice being a um, a way to appease the gods, mm -hmm. right? To get them to do our favor by, by burning and giving them these sacrifices, by glorifying them, and then, you know, they will finally do and be nice to us. And so that's sort of the image of God that you start mm. to, people start to have that God needs to be appeased and that, you know, this is our way of almost manipulating God to do what we want him to do. And then Jesus shows up mm. and he's the lamb of God. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, 
This is not about God being appeased. This is about showing the lengths that God will go to in order to rescue humanity. Like he's willing, like you were saying, to do anything to be with us. And that, I mean, must have been a mind-blowing moment for the disciples when they finally realized that they got that. That must have been like, that's what John the Baptist was talking about when he pointed at Jesus and say, here comes this lamb of God who who, um, takes away the sins of the world. Man, such a powerful moment. And you could say that we should get that now, but we sort of do the same thing where we, at times, I've tried to appease. I've tried to appease God and make promises. You know, if you just do this for me, then I'll do this. You know, God, if you will just, if you'll just take care of my family, then I promise I'll be at church every week. You know, I'm a pastor, so that's a pretty, pretty easy <laughs> promise to make. But we we make those promises thinking that we need to appease God, and yet. That's not what the message is mm. about of, of, of the sanctuary mm. is about. It's not an appeasement of God. Mm. It's showing how much God loves us. And without getting into any specifics, I think what you're saying is that there's a little nuance that shifts. So when I was growing up, and I am not an expert on the sanctuary doctrine, um, anyone out there who thinks who says they are is... Um, well, is is an expert in their own mind because, as you've mentioned before, it is has it has been one of the most hotly debated issues, not only within our our denomination, but as our denomination has conversations with people in other faith families. But I remember at least um, one of the views that was very popular when I was growing up was that Jesus was just up there in heaven looking at a book, mm. and if your name came up at the time at the, at that particular time, then you better make sure. That you were doing what that you were doing the right things in order to appease God, mm. and so the the sanctuary became about two things: it became about appeasing God, and it became about geography. Where is Jesus in in the geography of the sanctuary, and what am I doing to appease Him? Mm. And now you're saying, well, what if it's not about geography or appeasing God? What if it's about understanding how relent that how relentless God is? That there are no lengths to which He won't go. Which reminds me again of how the sanctuary system actually happened. Mm. Because once all the hair and the fur of the animal would burn up, what was left was the flesh to eat. And that wasn't burnt up. Mm. That was shared between the priests Mm -hmm. and the people. And so it was this communal meal that happened. Now, 2,000 years later, the Lamb of God sits with his disciples and says, this is my blood and this is my body. And he shares this communal meal with his disciples. And in essence, he is telling us the whole game plan hasn't been about appeasing me or about where I am. The whole game plan is uh, about you understanding that I am right here Mm. and that the only thing you need to appease me is sit down and have a conversation with me. Let's have a meal. Oh, wow. That is so powerful and so beautiful that the end goal is communion, really, Mm -hmm. right? It's communion with God. And even in that meal, he points to a time when not just his 12 disciples, Mm -hmm. but all of humanity will sit down Mm. with God in a communal meal Mm -hmm. in heaven or a remade earth. And, oh, wow, that is so beautiful. Yeah. And that's what the sanctuary from the beginning was all about, that I may dwell among men. It's about rebuilding that community. Exactly. Now, I know you've been in the Middle East, and I know that you're thinking about going soon. Um, 
And so I know that you know that there's people in the Middle East, particularly in Jordan, that still live the same way that the, they lived back when Scripture was, re, was being written. And you have these Bedouin camps. And this idea of a tent that you're dwelling in becomes real when you're in one of these Bedouin tent camps. And the coolest thing that the Bedouins will do for you, as you're mentioning, is you'll come into their Bedouin tent, you'll dwell with them, and you'll eat together. Mm. And so the purpose of the dwelling is the eating, because in eating there is the relating. And I think that that's probably the piece of the sanctuary doctrine that hasn't been expressed enough. It's there, it's always been there, but we haven't expressed it loudly enough, and we haven't explored it deeply enough. And so I'm so happy that you're pushing us and pulling us to recognize that it's not about appeasing God. It's about recognizing that God is relentless. Yeah. And and this idea that, you know, Roy Gain, he talks about how the sacrifices, if you look at them, they are a particular type of sacrifice. They're a food offering. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, you know, you know this very well. They're a food offering. And that, that, that fits that imagery of the Bedouin 10, because the whole idea of a food offering was a relationship. It was a it was it was a relating type of meal, which is why, uh, at times, certain sacrifices were not co- completely consumed. There were some that were, mm-hmm. but some of them, it you took pieces of them and you shared it with your community, and it was all about rebuilding relationship, both horizontally with with each other and then also vertically with God. And so that that is at the heart of that sanctuary yeah. message of rebuilding the family of God. And that speaks, I think, to us in a way that is very primal. Um, in my culture, every time I go home, my mom will look at me and she'll, she was born in, the, in this country, she's lived in this country, speaks with a very distinct uh, New England uh, accent, but then she'll burst into this, uh, into the language of, of her parents mm-hmm. and she'll say, you're so skinny. And it doesn't matter, my weight has fluctuated. Um, since I was in college, but every time I go home, regardless of where that weight is, she'll say, you're so skinny, you need to eat. And we sit, and the first thing we do is we eat, and then we eat again, and then we eat some more. And I think it's because culturally, she recognizes that the way in which she shows love, and not only love, but connection with the past, is by preparing the meals that my family and her family used to eat all these years ago in a different country in a different space. And so there is something just primal Mm -hmm. in us that recognizes this experience as eating, of eating, and then says, well, there's certain religious undertones and overtones when we're talking about that experience. Yeah, food is extremely personal, right? It's, uh, It's something that identify identifies us as well and that's that's so powerful and when we are willing to share that meal with each other it's almost like sharing a bit of ourselves Mm. with one another um so then what does this look like for us to live it out in our everyday lives like when i imagine when i imagine you know we, we we talk about the relationship with god um but also in our relationship with each other, mm-hmm. I wonder if there's a way to take this principle because the end goal was to have a relationship mm-hmm. with one another and a relationship with God. If that is the goal of the sanctuary, even though we do not slaughter animals and do you know these food offerings anymore, is there a way to use food as a way to rebuild these relationships again and, and, and reestablish these relationships with God and, and each other? Is that, is that possible? 
I don't mean to be facetious, but I think it is. I think it is because Adventists have this built-in language that speaks about sanctuary. So what if sanctuary is not solely about 1844 in that debate, but what if sanctuary is about potluck and about special K loaf (laughs) and haystacks? What about developing a theology of special K loaf and haystacks? Because I know, I know members in our church family, and I'm sure our friends that are members of other churches know people in their churches that have this special, special, special recipe mm-hmm. that they don't share with anyone, but they, and they only cook on Sabbath and yeah. they only bring potluck. Mm. And what if Saint, what if, what if we begin to recognize that that experience is as important as the worshiping experience mm. when the choir is singing and the instruments are playing and the orchestra is blaring and the sermon and the sermon and the homiletician is delivering? What if the special K loaf and the haystacks are equally important to that? And how would that reframe the way we approach potlucks? Not as something we do but as a central sp- piece of our worship experience. Wow, that is that is mind-blowing. That potlucks, potlucks are almost a continuation, could be a continuation mm-hmm. of the sanctuary. That's that is so, so powerful. Um, and you mentioned haystacks. One thing I love about haystacks, and I, I love haystacks. I just, I love eating <laughs> haystacks. I know some people get sick of them, but there's something, I, I don't know. It's like you said, there's a memory associated mm-hmm. with haystacks. I, there's, there's, good feelings associated with haystacks. But what I like about haystacks the most is this idea that everybody brings a piece, Mm. right? Everybody brings a piece. We all bring all these different ingredients and then we put it together into one food Mm. and we eat it together and it makes something more delicious than one piece by Mm. itself. Like if all you have is beans, it's kind of a sad meal. But if you bring those beans and then somebody else brings, you know, veggie meat or chips or or lettuce or sour cream or whatever you put on your your haystacks, onions, whatever. And then you put it together. Wow, that's a meal, right? Right? You saw it first. We just started developing, dear friends, a theology of haystacks, (laughs) which is also closely connected. And we don't mean to be facetious, but Mm. I think there's something there, Joey, Mm. with the special K loaf. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if you eat special K, just a cereal. I don't because it's bland and blah. But I can't get enough of special K loaf. Mm. And I'm a really picky eater. And there's something just amazing about all these disparate ingredients and something that seems bland and mm. tasteless now being leveraged to taste and look and feel completely different. And it's almost this homogenization. I didn't say that word right, but it's it's this mix and this melding of all these different backgrounds and ingredients and flavors that is now being united for the benefit of the of the whole. Yeah. And so both with with these dishes that are very Adventist, there's something about the whole becoming one. Mm. And it's really interesting that that's what ultimately the corporate sacrificial system was about. Yeah, It was about the whole mm-hmm. becoming one, about sin being understood communally, mm-hmm. redemption, forgiveness, and salvation also being understood communally. Yeah. And in becoming one, the individual pieces don't lose their flavor, mm-hmm. right? It is actually 
them keeping their flavor that what that's that's what makes that one thing so much better yeah. right that flavor adds to the identity of the mm -hmm. whole and maybe maybe that's what part of what god was saying when he he says here i am doing a new thing Ooh. right where he is he is bringing about a new thing not by taking pieces that are new but taking pieces that are old mm -hmm. and putting them together in a new way mm -hmm. Um, the church that I was at before this one, uh, it was it was a very unique situation because we had uh, four different congregations that came together to make one church. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's hard enough to have two different congregations come yeah. together to make one church. But here was four different pieces. There was a Filipino group. There was a multicultural church. There was a Korean speaking group. And then there was a English speaking Korean um, American group. And they all came together to make one one church and it wasn't easy. I mean, there were times, so there were struggles, there were differences. You would think it's minor, but like potluck mm -hmm. was a big issue mm -hmm. because potluck is in, in all each of those cultures, potluck is a little bit different. Um, the way that we worship, all these little, little nuances. And yet what held us together was this firm belief that God wanted us to come together to do a new thing, mm. right? The metaphor we used was that of a choir and that um, you know, we had four different choirs and they were, they all had different skills and, and ability to sing different songs, but they, there was a new song God wanted us mm. to sing. And it could only be sung if we all came together mm. to sing the various parts. And what would keep us together is just keeping our eyes on the conductor, which is Christ. Right. Mm. But that's really what you're talking about is this metaphor of the special K loaf of the haystack. What puts us together is God. And as long as we, it's not about us changing our identity, but also us giving our flavor and to, together creating a new identity um, in Christ. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, think about how amazing it would be for our churches um, in our sanctuaries now to move from the heavenly sanctuary and the earthly sanctuary to our literal sanctuaries. Mm -hmm. How amazing would it be if we allowed God to dwell in the middle of that space? Mm -hmm. um, that's what the that's what the tabernacle really was about. It mm -hmm. was about this constant reminder that it that what keeps our twelve tribes and different ideologies, different ethnicities, different cultures, different flavors. What keeps us united is the presence of Yahweh right mm -hmm. in the middle of the camp. And so if it, if it worked for Israel, yeah. this loose band of tribes that would only come together for mm. worship and for war, that's mm. the only times they would gather. Um, but what kept them together was this Yahweh experience. Mm -hmm. And so I think for us, who also sometimes in our congregations only get together for worship and for potluck wars, mm. what if we recognize that what really binds us is the presence of Yahweh dwelling in that tent? Oh, wow so powerful that binds what binds us together is the presence of Yahweh dwelling in that tent and that's really what the sanctuary message is all about that God dwells among men mm. and we are his people mm. and that's what binds us together yeah that's powerfully powerfully said so Joey I think then the question has to become are haystacks your favorite potluck food? <laughs> <laughs> it's one of them. It's one of them. You know, I, I I also like the various casseroles. I grew up in a Korean church, and so I didn't really get a lot of casseroles growing yeah. up. But once in a while, because we rented a, uh, an American church, and then we 
we would once in a while go to their potlucks and have potluck with them. And I loved, I mean, I, um, tater tot casserole. <laughs> oh man. Whoever invented that, <laughs> that's, that, that, that was genius. Pure oh. genius. <laughs> oh. uh, special K love, all oh. of those things. Yeah. Yeah. See, you're, you're, you're healthy for me. It's the dessert. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I don't know what this is called, but again, I grew up. I grew up in a in a Hispanic church, and so we weren't really big on desserts. Like dessert was watermelon. <laughs> That's the All same. You would get you know, <laughs> some same. watermelon. Um, but since I moved to like a multicultural church, desserts are huge, yeah. and there's there's this heavenly concoction created by God's hands. Uh, it's like a jello mm -hmm. with like with it's it's the most amazing thing. It's jello, like orange jello uh -huh. with whipped cream uh -huh. and you who cook it know what it is. Um, it's just so good. So good. And again, it's a bunch of different flavors that mm -hmm. you think otherwise wouldn't match. Yeah. And then they come together and they feel fit beautifully. It's so funny that you say that watermelon was your because in Korean churches it's the same thing. They're like, you want dessert, fruit. Yeah, fruit. that's that's actually one of the things when our churches came together that we had struggle with because the the Korean church members they would be like, what are you talking about? We don't have dessert. We have fruit. It's sitting right there. You know, the oranges, the the the, the watermelon. That's dessert. And and then the other members would be like, what? No. <laughs> Fruit is not dessert. Fruit is healthy. Then desserts must be unhealthy, right? Cookies and that's all dessert. You know, pies and you know, that Jello that thing that jello you're talking thing. about. So, so that that took a little while. Um, the, I will say the younger kids they really appreciated the fact that we started having real desserts and not mm, just fruit. My, so. <laughs> my kids love it because I tried that line that my church used used with me yeah. that fruits are God God's candy, and they were like, no, candy is candy. Um, so my prayer, I think, Joey, as, as we, as we close here talking about potluck and so many other things and developing what I thought would never be possible, which is a theology of haystacks. Um, uh, my prayer is that the sanctuary doctrine cease to be kind of this thorn in Adventism side and be, and becomes the dessert that we bring mm. to the Christian potluck mm. where we're exchanging all these different doctrines. Wow. Wow. And maybe a little bit of haystacks. As maybe well. just 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 a tad. <laughs> would you would you close us in prayer? Yes. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for being a God of of love, of community. What would this world be like without community? Mm -hmm. It's unimaginable because it's woven into the fabric of who we are, because it's woven in the fabric of who you are. And the whole idea of the sanctuary was that you wanted to rebuild that community with mm. us again. So now as we seek to follow in your footsteps, we ask that, that we have the courage to hold more potlucks and to mm. spend time together, even with people and ingredients that are a little bit different that we may not understand the flavors of. And yet somehow when it all comes together with you, it becomes something beautiful and really, really delicious. So help us to to follow in your footsteps is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, until next Sabbath, friends, love yourselves, love one another, love in community. May God bless you. Mm -hmm.